What an appropriate song as we continue in our study in Isaiah. And if you could turn to Isaiah 52 and stand for the reading of our scripture this morning. We'll be covering Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13 and going through Isaiah 53. The word of God reads, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He shall, he, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together as we start. Lord God, I pray that you remove any distractions as we prepare to enter this text, this holy, sacred text in the Old Testament. Lord, as we look to your son, the servant, the one who bore the sins of many, that he was pierced for our transgressions and not his own. Lord, help that be 
why we remember him during this holiday season. The Advent, Lord, is about your son, Emmanuel, God with us. Help us never to forget that and why he came and why he bore the sins of many. I pray that my humble attempt here to expound this text blesses your people, that it speaks to them, that the Holy Spirit does his work because of your word and that you are glorified. We pray this in your son's name, amen. So as we continue in our Advent series in Isaiah, we see in the last two weeks we've gone over that Christ was born to reign and he was born to redeem. And this is the means of how that happened as we look at Isaiah 52 and 3. He was born to suffer. And Isaiah 53 is a very highly esteemed portion of Scripture. There are few Old Testament Scriptures that hold the weight of this text in terms of gospel truth. Spurgeon calls it a Bible in miniature, the gospel in its essence. Others have called it the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. And another is, he says, without any exaggeration, it is the most important text of the Old Testament. So please be patient with me as I attempt to show you the mountain, because I, I can't scale it. I'm in no shape to do that. Uh, but I pray that you are blessed by this text. So this text is the fourth of the great servant songs in Isaiah. The others are in chapters 42, 49, and 50. And to set up the structure of this passage, we see that it's broken down into five stanzas. Each stanza has three verses and its own theme. The first and fifth stanzas create somewhat of a bookend for us as we look at it. They're about the servant's exaltation and his success. The middle three stanzas, two, three, and four, are about the servant's suffering and his humiliation. So before we begin to examine this text, it's important for us to establish who the servant is. And this is very important. We have the benefit of seeing this passage through the lens of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, which provides us with the interpretive key to help us see this correctly. It is clearly Christ, the Messiah, and the promised one. We will see that not only as we go through the text in Isaiah 53, but we also have just read in Acts 8 when Philip was explaining the gospel about Jesus, starting with this passage in Isaiah 53. It said, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And what did Philip say when he opened his mouth? Beginning with this scripture that we're about to look through, he told them the good news about Jesus. He makes it clear to the man from Ethiopia that the suffering servant is Christ. There are also many references throughout the New Testament, all of them pointing to this servant, who is the Christ, the hope of the world. So let us start in chapter 2, looking at verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. We do have to ask ourselves, what is a servant? 
someone who does the will of their master, to put it simply. My servant shall be successful, Isaiah is writing. He shall prosper. He will act wisely in order to accomplish his task. And what is his task? It's to do the will of the Father. Because of his wisdom, he will triumph. We see right away the end of this event. We know that he will succeed. And how successful will he be? He shall be high and lifted up, and he will be exalted. Many people tried to stop this from happening. Satan had many schemes to try and stop this from happening. From Herod to trying to kill young infants and attempting to kill the promised one, or Satan attempting Jesus in the desert to try to get him to forfeit his kingdom, or one of his own disciples betraying him. But we know that all of them fail because the servant would be exalted. Being lifted up refers not to the kind of death he died on a cross, though there is hints to that, but what it does mean is that he's lifted up and exalted to the right hand of God. We do have to think about how Jesus must have had this verse in mind when he was here on earth, perhaps in the garden, where he was praying to God, knowing what was about to happen to him. He said, if there's any way, please let this cup pass from me, but your will be done. He must have had verse 13 in mind here. My servant will be successful. He will be high and lifted up. And my servant will be exalted. Despite what we are about to read in the coming verses, Christ triumphs. We know that he wins. And we can imagine that Jesus had this on his heart and mind when he was about to be arrested, beaten, whipped, and crucified. God promised over 700 years before his incarnation, when this text was written, that his servant will triumph. He was born to suffer. And through his suffering, we are healed and have peace. In verse 14, this, this is a verse in stark contrast to the previous one. This servant who was lifted high and exalted was marred so badly he could not be recognized even as a man. This is what we preach during Easter. Jesus was beaten, mocked, and ridiculed, paraded through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to Calvary, where people mocked him, saying, Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. The chief priest Priests, scribes, and elders, he said, he can't save himself. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. But beloved, we are Christians today, not because Jesus came down, but because he stayed up. He was whipped for you. He was humiliated for you. He was unrecognizable for your sake. And many were astonished and appalled at his appearance. This word describes a person's reaction when seeing destruction and desolation. They were struck with fear because of the dreadful condition of the servant. But there will be another astonishment that comes. When those who did not consider him to be important, at his second coming, they will be absolutely astounded. They will see him from a new perspective, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he comes in judgment. 
And in verse 15, this was the purpose of his disfigurement. In his condition of disfigurement, he does something for others. His marred state was mistakenly regarded as punishment for his own sin. But it was the condition in which he would be, bring cleansing to the nations. The purpose of sprinkling is, is for cleansing or purifying others in a priestly ritual. Christ is our great high priest. And Christ, as a priest, will sprinkle his blood to purify many nations. He does this as a sufferer, sufferer for the sake of atoning. The purification of sins for those who believe. This is the work he performed, and this is why he was exalted, beloved. We know the servant is successful because he shuts the mouths of all those who doubted and mocked him. Isaiah uses kings as an example here to show that even the highest honored on earth can say nothing in opposition to the truth. Them being speechless is showing awe and honor to the servant when they realized who he is. When all who see Christ as exalted, they will know that they have mocked God and rejected the Messiah. We read this, if we look ahead to Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 15, it says, The kings of the earth and the great ones and generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Just as we read in verse 14 in Isaiah, this is a different astonishment. They are in fear and crying out because they know judgment has come and it is too late. Their per perspective of this suffering servant will be from rejection to realization of who he is. The marred one is the triumphant one. The one they mocked is now the judge, and he plays for keeps. We move on to the second stanza, the rejected servant. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the power and salvation of our Lord. We see if we look in our Bibles just in the chapter before at verse 10, 52.10, Isaiah uses the same language. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. He has shown his power and salvation to all nations. All have seen it, but who has believed it? It's a rhetorical question because it's, the answer is not many. And why is that? And we see the answers in verses 2 and 3 in, in chapter 53. I'll give you three reasons why not many have believed it. From the world's perspective, he had the wrong background says in verse 2, for he grew up like, before him like a young plant and a root out of the dry ground. He had the wrong background. If this is God in the flesh, he should have had palaces, riches, servants and armies, all of the pomp and circumstance due to a king, rolling out the red carpet for his entrance, but he did not do that. He did the opposite. He humbled himself. 
We see in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse six, it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. One of many reasons he did this was so no one could accuse him of having it easy. That he had a plush life, a life of ease and no struggle. No one can say, well, of course he succeeded. How could he not? He had everything, but he had nothing. He did not even count himself equal with God, but took the form of a man and came to serve and not to be served. Jesus was also from a poor family. He was the son of a carpenter. Being from Nazareth was not something to boast about. Kings are supposed to come from royalty, from a long history of pure lineage, not from somewhere that is just a spot on a map. Not even the people in his own town believed. When he returned to Nazareth to preach, we read in Luke 4 that they were filled with wrath and brought him out of the town to throw him off a cliff. In John 7, we read that not even his own brothers believed him. The second reason is that not many believed is that he had the wrong image. The second part of verse 2, it says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The world will tell you that image is everything. But Jesus had no form or majesty to look at and no beauty to desire. In worldly terms, Jesus was on the low end of society. No money, not good looking, from nowhere and going nowhere. He was the one to be looked down on. And thirdly, starting in verse 53, he had the wrong personality. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, which means pain. He was a man of pain. His entire life was characterized by pain and grief. And this is not to say that Jesus didn't enjoy life or or experience anything joyful in life. He did. But this pain or grief was not only physical, but it was also spiritual. Christ was in the world, surrounded by sin. He observed it firsthand what the result of sin is. He saw the spiritual condition of the world and the people around him. They were fallen and in need of a savior. The the word grief here stands for sin. Isaiah is using the same imagery from the first chapter of Isaiah. Starting in the second half of verse 5, it says, The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. The whole, there's no sound saying, but bruises and sores and raw wounds that are not pressed or out or bound up or softened with oil. Christ was acquainted with sin. He was made to know sin, not by committing it, but by experiencing it around him and living among it. 
Imagine being God incarnate and seeing the oppression of sin that has on mankind. Seeing people get sick. Seeing people lie and steal and cheat. Seeing drunkards and adulterers. Seeing murder and death in the world that he created. That is not how God designed the world to be. Jesus was sorrowful because of his holiness and his knowledge. His heart was probably breaking for these people. He knew their spiritual condition. He knew that he came to bring salvation to the world. And these were the people who looked down on him. One from whom men hide their faces. One who men despised and who disrespected him. He was rejected by those who were supposed to love him. He knows suffering and sorrow because he entered into it. He became acquainted with it. He was insignificant. He was a nobody. He was a loser. See the servant's rejection. And now we move to the third stanza, the substitutionary servant. Now we discover why the servant endured rejection, pain, and sickness. We find out it was for us. This is a revealing of a new perspective of the servant altogether. We need to make note in this next stanza how many times the personal pronouns are used of our, we, or us. His suffering was our blame, not his. Let's read those three verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant gets the blame. We get the benefits. Atonement is in view here, beloved. Atone means at one, at one. God and man are now unified, reconciled because of the servant's substitution. Amazing and with certainty, he bore our sin and carried away our pain and suffering. The servant bore the consequences of our sin. Isaiah brings us to the heart of the message here. Jesus really was a man of sorrows, but they weren't his own. He didn't deserve them. They were our sorrows. Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross. God has shifted the blame to Jesus Christ as he died for guilty people. Many in ancient Israel believed suffering was the result of one's own sins and therefore assumed that the servant was getting what he deserved. When Jesus was crucified, Israel thought his hardships were deserved for his own sins. Though they didn't realize it at the time, he was bearing the judgment that their sin required. Those who saw the servant did not consider him God, but rather one severely punished by God. The griefs and sorrows he carried were indeed deserved, but not by him, it was by us. This is a picture of Christ. He sees the burden that we are carrying the burden of sin and guilt, and we are so weighed down by it and unable to remove it. He comes to us and removes our burden. Not only does he remove it, 
but he puts it on himself and carries it away. He was the substitute for us. The sickness of us he bore. And starting in verse 5, here's the means of our atonement. But he. Two very big words. This is a major change of perspective in the text. This is a salvific truth being revealed. But he was not stricken and smitten by God for his own afflictions. He was pierced and wounded for our evil. He was crushed and beat down for our sins. The word iniquity here has very powerful meaning. It, is, it strongly conveys the idea of, of twisting or perverting deliberately. The idea here is guilt from conscious wrongdoing, knowing what they're doing. The punishment must fit the iniquity. This is why the prophet says in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Paul in Romans 3 uses the same language when he is talking about the total depravity of man. Let's turn there and look to, to Romans 3 if we can, starting in verse 9. Paul says it doesn't matter who you are. You are under sin. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, says, as, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." That's the law. We are held accountable to God through the law. Your works will not suffice. You cannot be justified by your works. All the law does is give you a knowledge of your sin. You are left to yourself in need of a substitute who can righteously fulfill that law. That is the bad news. But get ready because here comes the good news. Here comes gospel grace, starting in verse 21 of Romans 3. It says, but now. Paul took a page out of Isaiah's book. He uses the same argument. But now God, the righteousness of God, has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. We just established that through the law. Everyone is a sinner and falls short of God's glory. In verse 24, we see more good news. Even though we are a sinner, we can still be justified. We can be made right in standing before God. What do we have to do? Nothing. It is a gift of grace. All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ through faith. How did God accomplish this amazing grace? Through Christ redeeming you. He took your sin debt 
and put it on himself because God sent his son as a propitiation by his blood. What that means is that God was appeased. He was satisfied in his son's sacrifice. And why did God do this? It was to show God's righteousness because instead of claiming his right to immediately punish sin, which is called his forbearance, he was gracious and temporarily passed over your sins. This is explained in the next verse. It was again to show his, that he is righteous and that he must be just. He must punish sin. God is holy and cannot ignore it. In order to be just, he must be satisfied in the payment. This is how he remains just and gracious at the same time. He took his, he took, his son took the punishment and now we are justified because of it. God is saying, if you believe and have faith in my son, who I sent for this very reason, you are no longer under the punishment of sin and are now seen as righteous, as just before a holy God. That's why we refer to ourselves as blood-bought sinners. Amen? Now let's turn back to Isaiah. Because this text in Romans emphasizes what the prophet is saying. If you look in Isaiah 53, 5, we see the same verbiage. But he, Christ, was our substitute. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The servant's condition is pierced, crushed, punished, and wounded. Conditions that should describe us. But for those who believe in him, they have peace within, not anguish or grief. The wounds that were inflicted by the scourging of the soldiers are the means of healing for the believer's spiritual wounds and paved the way for salvation. Christ's obedience to the Father was absolute. Christ was faithful unto death. This is what allows God to see us as righteous because of our sins because our sins have been paid by the servant's substitutionary death. Looking at verse 6, the redeemed believers who have faith in Christ will acknowledge that they were guilty and have gone astray. We see by grace that we have all turned away. And when we do it our way, it leads to destruction. We cannot follow the way of the world. They will tell you to go your own way, to indulge in your desires. They will say, hey, no one can tell you what to do but you. You make up your own rules, and it's okay if you don't even follow those. But we see by grace that the Lord has laid those foolish thoughts in our intentional disobedience on Christ. The Lord has pointed the finger of punishment, and it's not at you. It's at his son. This portion of scripture tells us why we need Jesus. We have all, like sheep, gone astray, and we need a shepherd. We need a savior. He took our grief. He took the punishment we deserved and sacrificed himself in our place. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming down to be baptized. In the old covenant, lambs were sacrificed as a substitute for sin as God prescribed. Now Jesus 
is the perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice for his people. All of the rituals, all of the offerings and sacrifices all foreshadowed Christ. They were signs and symbols that pointed to him. He now fulfilled the law perfectly and he created a new covenant, an everlasting covenant that will not fade away, one that is upheld by Christ in his finished work. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen? We know that God accepted the sacrifice of the Son as well. Dying in our place, we see in Revelation chapter 5, a lamb standing as though it had been slayed. And this is what is said of the lamb, which is Jesus the Christ. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take up the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And a couple verses later, we see saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And again, I heard from every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever we see God exalting his son in exception of his sacrifice and completed work. Christ has ascended into heaven and there he finally receives all the pomp and circumstance that's due him. It is there he receives all the honor and glory he deserves. The world rejected him and God embraced him. He is worthy. Through him, we have peace and healing. The Christian should be characterized by peace when others do not have it. When it doesn't make sense to the world, Christ has given us true peace. And it is a peace that is rooted and grounded in him. We have peace because we have been spiritually healed. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit because we believe in Christ. And we move on to our fourth stanza, the submissive servant. In verse 7, we see a drastic contrast from verse 6. In verse 6, you see the many sinful sheep who have gone astray. And here, we see the single submissive sheep. Consider how he went. He went willfully. This would be unexpected conduct. He did not go kicking and screaming, but he offered himself voluntarily. He was submissive in his silence. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He did not protest how he was being treated. He knew why he was suffering and submitted to God's will. Christ, the God-man's human will, gave way to divine will. This is why when he was praying to God in the garden, he says, not my will, but yours be done. He consented and embraced God's will for him. Him being silent was not weakness, but an exercise of deliberate control as he endured it. He was not overpowered. He chose not to fight back. He also submitted in his suffering 
as we see in verse 8. He was taken away by oppression and judgment. He was given an unjust trial. We read nowhere that any scroll or portion of scripture was used in his accusations. He was, his treatment was wrong from beginning to end. Isaiah asked the question here, who in that generation considered that Jesus died and was punished for the sins of those who believe in him? Well, the simple answer again is not many. He was cut off or separated from the land of the living, which means he died. They were blinded by their own hate towards Jesus. And his death was under the guise of human justice, but in reality, it was because of divine justice. It was the servant's choice to move forward. He was not caught up in the events that were out of his control. He laid his life down willingly. Adding more insult to this, the servant was not buried alongside martyrs and saints, but alongside the wicked and the rich. One of the many that were crucified and was going to be thoughtlessly gotten rid of for those who killed him. He was a good man, but he was buried with the wicked. He was a poor man, and he was buried alongside the wealthy. It should have not ended this way. Yet he was submissive even in his shame. Both in word and deed, his life was flawless. Yet he was treated like a criminal. Although he had done nothing wrong, he did not deceive anyone but spoke the truth, and he was still put to shame. Peter correctly expounds on this aspect of Christ's work from 1 Peter 2. Starting in verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one who endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? if when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Christ submitted to the will of God. The last stanza, stanza five, the servant's salvation. Here we come to the climax. It pleased the Lord to crush him. The dying of God the Son was the doing of God the Father. We must recognize that. We must not miss that it was God's will to pour out his wrath on the Son. It was the Jews who yelled, crucify him. It was the Romans who nailed him to the cross. But it was God the Father who punished him and crushed him. God pours out his full, undiluted wrath onto his Son. And Jesus drank that cup, a cup that has accumulated the fury of God against all types of sin. All of it punishable by God. 
This is why Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the first time that God had to turn away from his son. God being holy cannot have union with sin. So God forsook the son. Paul accurately gives us the meaning of this event in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. The Father and the Son were together in this work, and it delighted God to know that it would be accomplished. This is salvation for the lost. God should not be seen as harsh because of this, but astonishingly, astonishingly gracious. The second part of verse 10 has to do with his resurrection. God will raise the servant from the dead, and he shall see descendants. This has the idea of scattering seed, which will grow and bear fruit. Jesus will see the fruit of his sacrifice here. God will raise the servant from the dead and he will live forever as the son of God. And the will of God will flourish because of his works. In verse 11, we see God is pleased in his son and out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus shall see and be satisfied. In life, the harder the task, the greater the satisfaction is when it's completed, is it? This was the greatest work ever accomplished in human history. Jesus saw that the work was done and he was satisfied. It's finished. Satisfied that his substitutionary work was complete, he can now justify many. He can now declare right, righteous those who believe. By knowledge and belief in an atoning work of the servant, many will be made righteous. Many will no longer be guilty of iniquity, though the cost was great, the outcome was even greater. And lastly, in verse 12, therefore, because of everything we've just read and discussed, this connects the suffering of the servant with his exaltation. Jesus now will share the spoils of his victory Picture a victory parade, the conqueror making the march at the front, bringing home the spoils of war. And what are the spoils we partake and benefit in? Jesus now pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit. He has given spiritual gifts to his church. He has given assurance to those who believe. Because of his works, we take part in his divine grace and mercy now. We are sealed, and it came at a price, with a great cost. And not all the spoils are experienced yet. We will take part in future glory in heaven with Christ. For all eternity, we will share in Christ's victory. Isaiah gives us four reasons at the end here why he deserved this honor. And let's look at verse 12. First is because he poured out his soul to death. Second, he was numbered with the sinners. Thirdly, he bore the sin of many. And fourth, he makes intercession for sinners. Christ, right now, reigns and intercedes for his people. 
he is still working on behalf of those who are his. Paul in Romans 8 tells us that Christ, who is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us now. And in Hebrews 7, we are told that Christ lives to make intercession for people who draw near to God through him. What a great comfort to know that you are the subject of Jesus' intercessory prayer. John Stott wisely says the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Rejection was his. Acceptance is ours. The wounding was his. The healing is ours. The stripes were his. Salvation is ours. The price paid was his. The forgiveness is ours. The death was his. And life is ours. If you do not know Christ, repent of your sins and believe in Christ. Christ is telling you that he does not want you to bear your burden any longer. He is saying to you to let my chastisement give you peace, to let my stripes heal you. Repent and believe and salvation will be yours. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the gospel that it portrays, for the gospel that saves sinners that don't deserve it. We pray that we bask in your grace and mercy daily, that we look to you when we're struggling and we're suffering because you have suffered more than we can ever have. Lord, that you endured the cross, you bore the burden of our sin, and that you were high and lifted up and exalted for us to glorify your Father. Thank you for doing the will of the Father. Lord, we pray that as we go out, that we continue to think of this, that it changes our hearts and minds, that it sanctifies us, that it helps us appreciate more of who you are and who we are in you. Lord, we praise in your son's name. Amen.